Hi, you're listening to the Prospect Roads podcast with Niall Lawler and Ewan Friars. Hello and welcome to the 18th episode of the Prospect Roads. I'm here as ever with you and Friars. Hi, hello. Now. How's it going? Good. Yeah. Uh, listeners may be aware that we're trying to do this quite quickly because we've already done one one intro and it sounded like we were talking too slowly. It sounded like we were high. <laughs> sounded like we were tired. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> it was a chamomile tea version of our normal intro. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what you've been doing since the last podcast now. Um, I'm still out in uh, British Columbia in the place called Penticton, uh, on top of a mountain that is appropriately called God's Mountain. Um, I've been exercising a lot, I've been living well, and I've been soaking up copious amounts of sun. It's been very good. Nice. Yeah. And uh, you, you were saying the weather's turned now? Yeah, it's just kind of, it, it's apparently like the autumn comes in very quickly here, so it's like in the mid 30s for two months and then it goes down drastically to like mid teens <laughs> yeah so uh, like Ireland yeah well yeah apart from the mid 30s but yeah <laughs> but let's, um, not, let's not talk about that yeah <laughs> it's a uh, it's a really nice place to live to be honest uh there's a really massive local or there's a really massive focus on like locally produced food and organic food and everyone we live with here is really like selective over over what they eat, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So it's funny because when we got here and me and me and my girlfriend were telling them all we're vegetarians, they're they're thinking, oh, cool, they're like they they must be, you know, from the same like way of thinking as us. And then we rock up, we go shopping together, and they're like, oh, you're eating this? Look at all the additives, and they like read all the labels and stuff. It's quite funny. <laughs> they're like, so it's you a bit of an vegetarians? education. Yeah, yeah, a bit, a bit of an education for us, definitely. And I mean, I guess I found it quite interesting because, you know, on the last podcast, we spoke to Mick uh, about veganism and we've actually had loads of like feedback from that, which is really good. And it's people are saying it's it's interesting to talk about because I guess it's something that we haven't really spoken much about either with the band or through the podcast in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, it was just from his standpoint and he's like he's an activist and he's like very ethically driven and, you know, he cares so much about animal rights. And it's it's amazing mm-hmm. to hear about that. Whereas like coming out here, ninety five percent of the meals we eat are all plant based and like totally vegan. But yeah. no one no one is like by definition a vegan. No one actually calls themselves a vegan, and they eat meat maybe like once or twice or once every two weeks. And it, it's so funny it's coming at it from a health perspective. Yeah, more than anything. yeah, totally. Like they they care about the food they put in their bodies, and they think that maybe meat isn't the best thing for them or dairy isn't the best thing for them but they're mm-hmm. you know i guess a lot of the stigma around vegetarianism comes from the definition is like pushing your agenda like oh, i'm a vegetarian that's what i am so everyone's very having that um name for yourself is really uh, people think that's really important i guess looking at it from the outside whereas the people here literally don't even talk about that you know it's it's like a it's not even an issue and they just oh, nice yeah you know they like they don't care about eating meat, but they do it every so often, and they don't care. They do, like well, they don't speak about animal rights, so they don't speak about the ethical side. It's 
just the health side. And I just find that quite interesting in comparison to Mick, who obviously, you know, pours He's a lot of his yeah pours a lot of his life in into the other way. activism. Um, and uh, it's you know you can look at it from ma- many different angles. And I watched a documentary recently called I think it was called Plant Pure Nation. Um, okay, it's about. Have you ever heard a book heard of a book called The China Study? No. Okay, it's it's basically a book about um, the kind of meat industry lobby and how it covers up the health benefits of a plant based diet. I ha- my my girlfriend's read it. I'm good, hoping to read it soon. But it's by the guy who wrote that who made this documentary. And again, okay, it's, cool. it's it's a really good documentary. It's, it it doesn't come at veganism and vegetarianism from an ethical standpoint at all it doesn't mention it once it's literally all about nutrition and health and you know the differences that switching to that kind of diet make yeah well you're noticing it more and more like with with um with veganism but almost any lifestyle choices i've noticed it with like vegetarian and vegan diets it's like there's documentaries coming out now that are kind of honing in on one specific area whether it is the ethical side of it whether it's the environmental impacts of of the meat industry or whether it's as you say the health and like the health one seems to be getting like so much more popular you know like there's a a vegan plant-based raw food place on lisbon road in belfast that's like coming at it completely from the health side of things and it's like it's cool just get a little bit of everybody's ideas in there if you know what i mean i mean and and that's something i think because we've always kind of looked at it from the ethical side you know it's i would say I'm i'm a vegetarian but then i you know eat dominoes or something you know it's like that in itself is obviously not good for your body but more and more recently it's been really interesting to learn about that and learn about how something that we've been doing kind of not even on purpose has has health benefits obviously you can eat really unhealthy vegan and vegetarian foods but yeah that's what i do (laughs) yeah the the plant-based diet seems to be uh Basically, it's really interesting, something to kind of look at anyway. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, the Mick podcast was really good. Uh, if people want to go back and listen to the last episode and any of our other episodes, they're on the, the SoundCloud link. But um, yeah, it just struck me listening to Mick's interview and listening to the interview that we're about to um, put into this podcast. It's just like, it's very nice how uh, the Prospect Roads podcast is so sort of transient and we can kind of like cover you know, a vegan activist one week and musician the next week. And, uh, you know, we've had so many different things on yeah. there and there's so many different topics and there's something out there for everyone as cliched as that is. Yeah. It's like, it's really nice in that, in and that it's aspect. Actually, it's a quite a nice selling point when you're speaking, when I'm trying to, when you try to set up the interviews and, you know, people might be like, why do you want to talk to me? Because you talk to people from walks of life that aren't, you know, maybe they don't do interviews very often and they just think the kind of process is a bit weird. And, and I'm like, oh, no, it's OK. We've interviewed a marine biologist. We've interviewed, you know, uh, artisan baker. We've interviewed, you know, uh, a musician from America. It's all like it's easy to kind of sell it to them in that in that sense. Definitely. The only drawback is that it has been impossible to find an audience. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the only drawback. Yeah. That's the only thing. <laughs> just a minor it's flaw. Like, no no one it's like hey are you interested in lots of different things <laughs> yeah <laughs> are you interested in everything <laughs> yeah but um no that's that's nice that's our charm for sure um which brings us to uh this podcast i guess um yeah. and i guess i've been sorry go ahead, go ahead. no you uh well, i was just gonna ask you because 
the podcast I've already listened to. It was recorded on the Isle of Egg. Is that right? That's it, yeah. Is that how you say it? Egg, yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, and you're traveling a lot in the Scottish islands. Uh, it's just, yeah. I, I was wondering how that how that was for you. And, and maybe if, could you talk about the comparisons between the Scottish islands you've traveled in and the Irish islands you've traveled in extensively? Uh, yeah, well, that's it. Like, I mean, I've, the Irish island sort of project that I've been doing with Tom McGeehan that we covered in one of the uh, Prospect Roads extra episodes it's like an ongoing thing and we've been kind of using it as an excuse to get around all the islands of ireland and yeah it's been a definite adventure now it's sort of extending out into the hebrides in scotland and yeah there there's there's similarities but every island has a unique character of its own and i think i was saying to you before it's like there's a there's a vibe or an atmosphere i mean vibe's a weird word but it's like I can almost sense that as I'm even just before I get off the boat, you get a flavor, you know, you, you kind of understand what the island's going to be like. And um, this was my second time on egg and it was, it was like, yeah, it was really good. I went up and worked for a couple of weeks uh, with the egg Island uh, trust, you know, just kind of helping out and sort of conservation things. And yeah. Um, yeah, the Island runs at 98% renewable energy and it's, got a really cool community spirit and it's very hands-on and so it's a really like vibrant island and it's one of my yeah one of my favorite places that i've been to um on all my all my island trips and hopefully i'll get back up again but yeah uh i mean the, yeah it was a fantastic trip like really cool place these um the small amount of islands i've been in in ireland it's almost like this um kind of break from reality in a way it's like because it's so, in some instances, it's so different from our everyday lives of living in a like a city or or even like a big town. You know, it's yeah. like getting to experience these like small things where everyone travels by boat all the time, and there's no internet in places. That, and these that's just everyday life for these people, and it's like it's like a nice break from the reality that we live in. Yeah, and like a lot of them have their own like you know unique realities compared to each other. If you know what I mean, as well. Yeah, I, I, that's something. We found when we went to Shetland, which is probably, I guess, it's quite a bit bigger than a lot of the islands that in off just off Ireland, Scotland. Yeah, yeah, a good bit bigger, yeah. But it had its own almost, you know, it, it felt a little bit Scottish, but it almost felt a bit more Scandinavian. Yeah, definitely, yeah, that's it. I mean, there's so many influences coming in on so many of these islands from different places, but you're right about Shetland Island. The Shetland Islands is just so linked to the the scandinavian story so yeah it's it's definitely part of it and um yeah you'll I mean you'll you'll hear you'll hear a bit of that kind of spirit of the island of egg through the uh the guests we have this week um from egg then i worked my way down sort of island hopping i went to a few different islands and camped and stuff on my way down and finally made it to uh uh back to home to the north coast but it was cool because I got a boat from Isla, one of the like more southern Hebrides, down to the north coast of Ireland. A boat from there, rather than what I'd normally do, which would go go back to Glasgow and then a flight to Belfast. Yeah. And it was a really, really sort of poignant moment because I'd I'd grow I grew up in White Park Bay, so I always looked at Isla. You know, it was always on my horizon, and I'd never been there. And it was cool to like come up over the headland on Isla and look south towards Ireland. You know, and it was like yeah. kind of that flip of of uh, viewpoints, oh, cool. which was really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, th that was a that was a really cool trip, and um, yeah, this will this will give a bit of a flavour of of uh, some of the characters I met up there. Sounds great. And 
uh, also you've been running gig. You've been continuing your monthly gigs in our some minor bakehouse. Yeah, so the gigs have been going really well. We had our third one uh, on Saturday, and it was sold out, rammed out. It was it was really cool. It was uh, Joshua Burnside who played at the the last Axis Off show we we did there in February. So. Um, yeah, he's a really, really gifted artist, and um, we had uh, Brash Isaac as well playing. So yeah, it was it's been really good, and we've just announced uh, Robin G Shields to play the next one. So oh, wow. yeah, it's it's um, it's really it's really turning into a little kind of uh, event of its own in the town. So yeah, yeah. and there's like continue. good anticipation for it. It seems definitely yeah. I mean, it's it's a good mix now, as we said, of kind of locals that come into the cafe and people around the town and then you know fans of each band are driving down from belfast or other parts of the country so it's like a real nice mixing pot and there's a really really good spirit about yeah you know it's it's not your kind of gig venue like you're getting id'd and you're going up to the bar and it's like you know and there's bouncers and it's like way more relaxed and um yeah it's just like us kind of hello come on in yeah here's a bottle opener kind of thing you know and it must be so, like I imagine it must be quite nice for all the bands to, if especially if they're not North Coast based, to come down and have like a day on the coast and like all all the delicious food available to them at Ursa Minor. And you know, it's a probably it, yeah. <laughs> like it's like a really delicious lunch as well as an actual gig. <laughs> totally, and like you know, from us doing it for so many years, being on tour, I think I'm quite in tune with like what bands want when they arrive yeah. somewhere and. You know, it's like, okay, this person, you know, well, these people first, they all want to be fed. And we've got like the best rider in the country, I think, with our, our yeah, delicious lunches exactly, in there. Yeah. And then it's like, you know, it's like some people will want to go to the pub after and some people want to go to bed after. And it's just kind of like, you know, give, like making people comfortable and giving everyone the option, you know, and some people are going to drive home and that's just going to, you know, it's like trying to sort of accommodate everyone, which I, I actually really enjoy that because it kind of like, makes me think oh i wish someone had done that for yeah, us a few times yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> well it's we, good yeah. that that's where your or, uh, or, um, mindset has gone from instead of being like i'm gonna start this so i can fuck over bands like i got fucked over <laughs> you've went the opposite <laughs> way which is good yeah yeah no i'm definitely i'm taking inspiration from a few of those like select gigs over the years where we did we were just like oh this is this is yeah. how bands should be treated on the road so yeah totally. yeah it's a homage to those promoters for sure another thing um, I, really, I really like about it just from like viewing it from afar it seems like and and i see these i see links to these things all the time you know just on twitter or something and it's like all the businesses around that area are like very in tune with each other and they work on these little projects so it's like this mix mixture of business and creativity and in a, in a without being too cheesy solidarity you know it's like the businesses are kind of working together without being like cutthroat you know it's like kind of taking oh, totally. away the the profit before anything aspect no and i think there's like if it's anything like um kira and dara who are kind of the heads of the ursa minor thing it's like these people aren't into it because they're capitalists and want to have a business they're into it because it's a lifestyle you know yeah, what i mean exactly yeah. and they they just want to do it because they enjoy doing it so it's like of course, you got to make it work and you got to survive, but they're not like, you know, they're the best bosses in the world because they're essentially what we would call um, ethical capitalists. Yeah. <laughs> they're just they're, they're just like, happy enough? And we're like, yeah, okay, you can go home. <laughs> You've done a good day's work. Yeah. Sounds great. Wish yeah, I, it's good. Wish I had bosses that good. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> anyway, anyway. So, um, okay, well, thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoy this uh, yes. interview and discussion. Enjoy. Yeah, for sure. Keep sharing, keep passing on the podcast to your friends. Uh, we, we really appreciate it. Um, this is Catherine and Pascal on the Isle of Egg. Bye. Hello from the All About Willow Croft on the Isle of Egg in the Scottish Inner Hebrides. I'm with basket makers Catherine and Pascal. Hi guys. Hi there, Ewan. How are you doing? Thank you so much for uh, being on the Prospect Roads podcast. Um, before we talk about egg and basket making itself, um, would you be able to explain to the listeners a little bit about what a croft is and what that means and how it differs from, say, a farm? Uh, right, a, a croft is basically the most <coughs> secure form of land tenancy. Yep. So um, they vary in size. Mine's about six hectares. Uh, there are much bigger ones on Sky where they can do fairly reasonable scale livestock. Here, um, it's mostly rough grazing. I have a, about a hectare of arable, uh, which is just grazing at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and traditionally, crofts were areas of land where people could grow their own food. They could have a few livestock, some cows, some sheep. Yeah. Um, and somewhere where they could build a house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, Many crofts are not big enough to be um, economically viable on their own, certainly weren't traditionally with traditional agriculture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so most crofters would um, use fishing and also other paid employment to augment what they could get from the croft. Yeah. I suppose um, that's one of the main differences, the size aye, and use. Yeah. And, and also crofts, the land tends to be not particularly brilliant especially on the west coast yeah and would, would i be right in saying that um on egg anyway the the croft and culture has sort of diversified in like the activities that people do on croft like uh, well just, just the fact that i think i think uh, i think in general uh, the the main diversification is accommodation provision for tourists yeah. okay yeah so there's still there's still quite a few here crofts there's a few crofts who, who do who have cows mm-hmm uh, and so they ship off um, calves or all the beasts in September before the winter comes in and they have to start feeding them. Yeah. Uh, and many have do have accommodation provision. They, they have various self-catering or camping or uh, B&B arrangements. Yeah. Uh, ourselves, we've set up to be basket makers and what we do with our, our diversification is willow growing and adding value to that crop through the basket making and selling the baskets. Yeah. We want we want to show that crofting can be viable uh, using alternative method, methods in, in the 21st century. Uh, yeah. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So so we don't need livestock yeah. to or help make a living. Or, or, yeah, yeah. or even accommodation provision. Well, um, you're, we're, you're we're trying definitely to make... showing that by just from being around here during the day. Um, and just looking around, there's all manner of a incredible willow and... Well, we said other wood uh, basket creations here. It's absolutely amazing to have seen it today and to see where the willow um, was growing as well. Maybe would we will just get on to the, the where did where did the uh, interest in basket making come from, and how did that all start? And you know, from from getting into it to where you are now, kind of thing. Uh, 
that would be me yep. initially. Yep. Um, uh, I come from uh, an environmental perspective. You know, that's that's. Uh, so uh, one day I was looking for a washing basket that wasn't plastic and I've been waiting a long time to find something that wasn't plastic and using empty boxes and anything that you do. Yeah. And then I came across a, a willow weaving course and for a weekend and I went on that to make my, my washing basket and I fell in love. I yeah. just It just clicked. I just knew. I mean, you, you can't get anything more low impact and sustainable than growing your own willow and turning it into something functional. Yeah. And it all is so functional, that's the thing. It's, you know, as well as beautiful and creative, you know, there's everyday uses for, like, a lot of the stuff around us, which is really magic to see. Um, and then you got into it later, or how Yeah, that... well, I broke my arm. Well, so, you know, we... I, I started doing as much as I could, going on courses, doing it, doing it any how I could, and I... I knew very quickly that I wanted to grow my own material, that it was that it was a big part of it. Yeah. So um, for quite a few years I plodded on doing that. I didn't really know much about baskets or the, the history of baskets, but uh, and living on an island it was difficult. I felt very isolated and there wasn't any internet at the time. I know that sounds like <laughs> really old. Was uh, there a time without internet? Yeah, yeah, there certainly was. And, uh, <laughs> So to make things happen was was more difficult. Yeah, actually. of course. Um, when you're trying something new and you don't know anything about it, you couldn't just Google it. Yeah. Um, so it took many years, many of years of plodding yeah. on and, and doing that, and then I broke my shoulder. Uh, accidentally, of course, and. Mm -hmm. um, Pascal uh, started helping with, with the bigger material and the bigger stuff. I kept asking Pascal to help with this and help with that. And he, although he'd been around it, because he was busy with his own thing and just surviving on egg, um, he hadn't appreciated, yeah. you know, just how wonderful it is, really. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. As a craft. And uh, he fell in love with it also. And that's when we realised that this is what we want to do, this is our future, this is our purpose, yeah. you know, yeah, this, yeah, yeah. this is, you know, finally, uh, you know, I really... And then, so at that, at that point, well, did we, have you, you'd sort of talked about other traditions of uh, basketry in, say, other countries, have you, have you just kind of looked into those other cultures and how relevant basket making is in other places now still or what? absolutely that's i mean and it was so necessary a part of the learning process we we left the island mm -hmm. and for seven years we moved about different places and we lived in france for a year and wow. and that really really truly opened our eyes to um how functional baskets still were yeah today and that men carry baskets to the market on a daily basis and nobody blinks an eyelid here you know it was like you know, 15 years, 20 years ago, it was like, well, so what do you do with it? Because baskets just weren't used, so if you were trying to sell it, you know, you had to persuade people Th that they could, could use, use it. And but the thing is, people probably did use them well, years, they did before years the and war. years ago. Yeah. You know, they were used for everything uh, before plastics came in. Yeah. And that, that changed the, the, the whole industry. Um, of willow growing yeah. it's, it's still in Somerset now but there's been a sort of renaissance for lack of a better word in the last decade mm -hmm. you know more and more people are getting into basketry and learning about basketry and willow growing willow growing is a very important part of the process yeah very important so for you was it important that not only would you be 
your business would be making the baskets, but it was the willow you'd grow on yourself. It's is the that... growing the willow, is and the taking care of it, and the harvesting it, and the the grading and sorting and preparation of the willow yeah. is about eighty five percent of the basket. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was would amazing. you say, Pascal? Ah, it's, I mean, it's a vital part of it, and uh, not just from a well, you'd say from a spiritual point of view. Uh, from a practical point of view, it helps if you've got your own material close to hand, yeah. and also economically buying material in, which we have to do it very occasionally if we've got a very big course <coughs> or something like that, yeah. um, is very expensive, especially if you're trying to get it transported to a remote island. Yeah. So all, from all aspects, growing your own material but it's, is, it's, is a vital part. There's an intimacy. <laughs> oh. There's an intimacy that just isn't there, you know, because you could just be making anything if you're just buying it in and, yeah, and exactly. just copying or do, you know, the, it start each basket starts in the willow field. Yeah, now that's it's yeah, it's amazing, and it, having been up into the field and seeing that you have like different varieties that have different colours and yeah. that, you know, before I got here this morning, I had no real knowledge yeah. of any yeah. of that, and it's when you have some people like yours so passionate to talk you through it. It's yeah, yeah. it's it's been amazing. You mentioned some of your um, uh, I guess high profile uh, customers. When we were in there, there was a... Oh, the handbag man. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. You know what? I was so shocked that you knew who that was because I didn't. <laughs> I See, the name Louis was Vuitton. Louis Vuitton and it was... Uh, yes. I just know it from a... Weirdly, I know it from a, a song. <laughs> I promise. Um, I but, believe you. But do you, want, do you want to explain how that uh, came about? Well, we had a... Uh, it was three, three years ago, four years ago. Um, we were approached by the factor that is the manager of a, a, a Highland Perthshire Hunting, shooting estate. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he had these a couple of baskets that he wanted copying, and what they were is uh, they're grouse panniers, so they're big baskets that are mounted either side of a pony mm -hmm. for bringing shot grouse off the off the hill. Right. Uh, and up to then, they'd been using this pair of very old and very knackered baskets held together with bailiff wine and chicken wire. Yeah. And, and, and they were using these in front of paying customers and they've been, they've been trying for two and a half years to get somebody to do them. Anyway, they found us and they said, can you copy these? Uh, and we said, yeah, because one of the things we like doing is, is, to, is recreating stuff that hasn't been done for a while. Mm. And we don't know when the last time these were made commercially, 30 years, 50 years, we don't know. Mm -hmm. We know so, nobody's making them now. So, yeah. the so we took these baskets, which were so nearly destroyed that some aspects of the of the design we had to take from other similar baskets. Yeah, you got almost uh, out of And so we, we could take dimensions and the weave styles, the weave patterns, materials, but there were bits that were just missing, so we had to make those up from our previous experience. And they also wanted all the original leather work transferred from the originals onto the new ones, yeah. and the, the saddle cushions. And so there was a whole lot of activity there, which was which was interesting and and fairly lucrative actually, because they were rich estates. Uh, and it turned out that when we finally made them, oh yeah, we delivered them to Chambord. Chambord. Chambord um, it's the Chateau de Chambord in the Loire Valley. It's right. the biggest, it's they have the biggest nice. French hunting, shooting, fishing show that there is. Okay. And they had a stand there, this estate, in a Scottish village. So that, the theme for that year's show was Scotland. 
Right. So, they, so to cut the story short, they gave us a, a stand for nothing. That's right. And we went and delivered, and, and we were introduced to the person who owned the estate, who turned out to be Louis Xavier Vuitton. Yeah. And, and who was the latest of the clan Vuitton who owns the Louis Vuitton. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, and then another customer. Some of baskets, yeah. Yes, yeah, well, there you go. Um, maybe he's getting inspiration. He tried to he tried to haggle for the price. Right. <laughs> well, we'll push it a bit. We will not go into that. You push it a bit. One of your other customers you mentioned before was that you've had baskets appear on the show Outlander. That's right. We are the basket makers for Outlander. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so do you want to tell me a bit about that then? Um, yeah, uh, it's it's an American TV series. Yeah. I believe it's on Amazon actually, uh, Amazon Prime. Um, I think David Cameron got it banned because it came out at the time of the Scottish referendum. Really? And, okay. Uh, you know, it doesn't portray the English in a very good light. No. Unfortunately. <laughs> uh, so it has a political undertone even. I, I think there would have been more yes voters. It was. There were political undertones even there. Uh, well, I, I watched the first I think I watched the first You've maybe two it? episodes. Oh, yeah. wow. But weirdly, I watched the first two episodes on Netflix and then the show, when I went back to watch it, wasn't on there anymore, so... No, maybe that, Amazon took it. Yeah, OK, right, yeah. that'll be it. Um, but so, you're, so well, your baskets appear yeah, on the show. Basically, it's based in um, 18th century Highland Scotland, mm-hmm. um, and then the second series was in 18th century Paris. So there was a lot of research. It gave us the opportunity to do the research, which we love. Yeah. We never got the time or um, can really afford to take a lot of time off to do it. And so we were able to research all the baskets and then obviously Pascal with his French connections. <laughs> um, his mother went yes, to... Uh, my mum went to a, a museum in Paris and bought a, a modern publication which had illustrations of some technical detail of some of the baskets that we were required to recreate. Because mm-hmm. all we had was single illustrations from an 18th century pamphlet. Yeah. Uh, and there was some missing information and this book confirmed it. So we had to do all that kind of work which just, is fun. Just to create, just to recreate these things. Because I don't think anybody even in France has been making these baskets for a very long time. They're right, yeah. Street trader baskets. Okay. Back, mostly back creels, back baskets, which um, market vendors baskets. would go around with their wares um, selling. So, so, you know, it's, the whole thing was, was, was a win-win situation for everybody, yeah. you know. And... They keep coming back to us. That's amazing. So any basket that, if you were to watch that show, any basket that you... About 99% because they do go to prop shows, apparently, mm-hmm. um, and buy up things. Uh, yeah. And we were also on it, weren't right, we, we, were, for three we, seconds. We, we appeared as extras, as basket-making extras. So you're making baskets yeah. in the background. The baskets we were selling to them for the show. <laughs> we were making them yeah, on shot. Yeah. yeah, there couldn't really be many films where the props are unfinished and the people are still making them in the background, actually, in the film. That's right, yeah. So, yeah, that's part of the film. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then lastly, uh, just would you be able to explain to our listeners a little bit about um, egg itself? The island has a sort of lots of unique things going on in terms of it's it's owned by the islanders. There was a buyout in was it 1996? Uh, 1997 actually. Uh, 97 and uh, there's well there's obviously the dramatic landscape and that environment and then there's the, the wildlife yeah the wildlife exactly and then there's the aspect of the, all the power being off the grid essentially or renewably powered island is that mm-hmm. correct um yeah. all right so the, the island was, was came up for sale 
because the, the last private owner went bust, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and a, uh, a trust of three parties, that is the Isle of Egg Residents Association, Highland Council and Scottish Wildlife Trust, mm -hmm. put together the funds to buy the island yeah. for the Isle of Egg Heritage Trust. Okay. So that's the partnership. Um, uh, although the, uh, the islanders have a majority of directors, so there is never an undue external influence on decisions that affect the community. That yeah. was the way that the deal was arranged. Okay, that was part so of the stipulation. We're now 19 years in. Yeah. Next year will be the 20th anniversary, and there'll be a big party for that. It's a fairly big party every year anyway, but it, next year will be a bigger party. Okay. Um, and since then, the island really has done a lot better. Um, there's a lot more... There's a lot more confidence, uh, there's a lot more money about, really. People are generally better off. Yes. Their housing is definitely of a better standard because the previous land uh, landowners uh, just allowed all the properties to run down into rat-infested holes, basically. Right, okay. Um, so generally everything's just better. Yeah. Um, it's a little more crowded on the roads. The road system really can't take it, but there's more vehicles about. Uh, and then, as you said, um, in 2008, I think it was, the, the island got a whole load of, as it happens, European funding, um, mostly, I think, to electrify the island. So up till then, everybody had, had individual generators, mostly three and a half, five kilowatt diesel generators, a few small micro-hydros. Mm -hmm. uh, and then with the advent of the electrification, that involved a buried mini-grid which feeds individual households. Uh, there's a, a central facility which has what, is it two 80 kilowatt generators, diesel generators, they're the backup, right? the fallback. But the heart of the system is a 90 kilowatt hydro generation scheme. Yeah. Um, there's 30 kilowatts now of solar array oh. and four fairly small six kilowatt wind turbines. And they feed into a central um, building which has uh, a batteries and inverters mm -hmm. uh, and so basically the place runs at around what 90% renewables something like that amazing. which must be as good as anywhere in the world really I would say so yeah um, it's just when it gets dry but it's also cloudy then you can't fall back <laughs> on the diesel occasionally yeah but, but even so I mean it's a it seems like a pretty a pretty modern model you know, that it, could, yeah. it is. I mean, could it be ruled it out should. in other communities? It might be, but you, you have to, it, it, in a way, it, it only works because of limits on the amount of power that are available. So each household, domestic households, are only allowed five kilowatts. Yeah. Um, so that's enough to run one big domestic appliance yeah, yeah. and small uh, lighting and that kind of thing at the same time. But you can't put a dishwasher and a washing machine on at the same time. Yeah. Otherwise it trips and you have to get it reset. So... There are, but if people are just happy works. to live that way, then but it's not difficult. Live that way. It's, it's not it's difficult, not difficult at, all. at all. Exactly. You know, yeah. We don't need everything all at once, even if we need so many things. Well, yeah, it's it's not as if you know out here is like some kind of primitive. It's, no, it's know, not. No, it's, it no. works fine. It's, it's a vibrant community. It's got a lot of creative people in it, but is is got a, a diversity of people that uh -huh. that's quite. Why uh, actually? Uh, yeah, a, it's only a population of just over 100 now. Yeah. But that's up, that's up from what, 50 or 60 or something when yeah. we first came in 60 2000? Yeah, something when we were first here, yeah. Oh. Um, 
just another thing about Crofton, actually, I've just thought it is an ancient feudal system. Mm -hmm. It's heritable. For instance, you know, we have this croft, but we just pay the landowner who is the Isle of Egg Trust. Right, okay. Um, okay. Our rent every year. Yeah. But we're building our house on it, we've built our workshop on it, um, because nobody needs to actually own land to, yeah. to use it. Yeah. You know? You just need to have security. You just yeah. Need, exactly. Yeah, you don't, you're not, there's that's no risk right. of you being kicked off or that's anything. Right. Like that's right. No, there's yeah. no risk. Um, no, risk. well, it seems to work. It works down around here very well. Seems well. to. Yeah. Um, thank you both so much, and thank you, Pete, as well. Yeah. You're welcome. Pete was providing the, uh, Pete actually, the banging noises. He actually yeah. lives in the house we used to live in. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and he's fixing the window that, that we had. Can people find out more about um, All About Willow? Yes. Um, now you rehearsed this, so... No. <laughs> no, I was thinking to something else when you actually said that. I was thinking about, we, you know, what we're trying to do here is we're trying to, you know, not only um, show that crofting can be done a different way in the 21st century, yeah. we really are trying to show that basket making is something that is worthwhile pursuing, you know, if you're so inclined that you, you we're trying to make it viable and show and that it can be done. Well. And yeah. relevant, very relevant. And it's not just, you can use the traditional techniques to um, make design contemporary baskets yeah um, and you know especially growing your own material because it gives you control over what you the colors and everything like that we leave the bark on the material yeah. so you can see the different colors but also you can incorporate different uh, grasses and woods and things like that but you know there is a market out there now for it there wasn't when I first started yeah. you know and with the internet you know we literally send orders to Japan and America and, and things like that. But what we want to do is we want to be basket makers in place on the island. We make a, a traditional creel, a back creel, that was made on this island hundreds of years ago mm -hmm. using willow, and, and we're using it. We, we make it in exactly the same way, the, the exact same techniques. Yeah. And, and that's just as... Um, relevant today the only difference is most people use it as a log basket sitting at the fire where it was used to bring in the turfs yeah for the fire but like in ireland yeah i've got a connemara turf basket through there that i learned in connemara beautiful yeah um and my mum probably has one at the fireside she, yeah. she, she probably does <laughs> exactly and so and what what facilitates that is teaching Passing on this, the skill is very important to us. I mean, one day we hope to have an apprentice here. Okay, wow. A young person from the island would, would be just yeah. superb. Yeah. I mean, there's another crofter here who's actually, because she, she saw what we were doing, she was interested and came along to help, she's actually growing willow on the island too now. Amazing. And she's going to sell that to us so we can still use organic um, material from, uh, egg. from from egg, so it's still locally sourced. Um and, t and teach it, and so we're hoping to get a lot of people who want to learn basketry come here, but also we teach in France and Spain. Mm -hmm. So we're up to date. We network with basket makers throughout Europe. Yeah. And so, and swap techniques and everything like that. Perfect, yeah. So, so it's, it's so exciting yeah, yeah. is what it is. Well, I think that, well, I hope that some of our listeners are going to be really switched on by that and will and they can and they can find us on exactly oh yeah all about willow.co.uk okay and there was that was too quickly it's www space pause all about willow 